Well, it's most certainly a tremendous privilege and pleasure that we have been afforded again to be allowed to assemble ourselves together tonight uh, that we may worship God, thank Him for the many blessings that He has so richly given each and every one of us uh, from the very, uh, very onset of our lives until this present moment. And we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study His Word together to appreciate his revelation, to know that he as a just God has given to us those things that he will require of us, those things that we will be judged by. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give us a perfect example of those things in teaching truth and righteousness and properly, correctly, perfectly applying that righteousness in his life. And we are thankful that he has given us through his spirit uh, the word by which we can go and look back and to see that perfect example, to adhere to the teachings that were given, and to follow and to do those things that we may have the hope of eternal life. So we serve and worship a most merciful, righteous, and just God. I do appreciate, as I said yesterday, the opportunity to be here with you, and I, I do hope our stay, uh, my stay rather, my wife and I, we will be an encouragement to you because you have most certainly been an encouragement to us. Uh, appreciated all the the time that I've been able to spend today with brethren in conversation, and one thing I've already noted and uh, been thankful for in the time that I spend with the brethren here, even just these last two days, we have been engaged in Bible discussions, opening up our word and talking about things that God has revealed, and I appreciate that. I'm going to tell you right now, uh, as a gospel preacher, when we do uh, go and do gospel meetings, uh, believe it or not, we are here. Uh, to, to learn from you, and I have most certainly uh, learned and been appreciative of this opportunity. So when we do see one another in heaven, if we never see one another again on this earth, I do hope the time that we've been able to spend together uh, would have contributed to that. So we have many, many things to be thankful for tonight. As we begin, I know we began our gospel meeting last week. I do want again express the fact that I am a fallible creature, as you are. And so as we open up God's word, I do hope that you'll follow with me as you have done. Please continue to do that. And if there's anything I say that you believe is contrary to the word of God, please, please bring it to my attention. Now, now we're going to have to open up our Bibles. And, and I do ask that you show me where I was wrong. Uh, you just thinking I was wrong or, or feeling I was wrong. That's not going to quite get it. Okay, we have, you got to show me where I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I definitely will make those necessary corrections. I assure you of that. And I say that most humbly. We're going to look at really Jesus as an example for the remainder of the week. And one of the lessons that I believe is so pertinent is a lesson tonight that we'll note. And using Jesus as an example will help us to really understand our dependency upon Jesus. The prophet Isaiah said in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself, it's not in man that walketh, to direct his own steps. We are dependent on God for guidance. We are dependent on God as how we're to live our lives. And of course, the perfect example of how we're to live our lives is set forth by Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that's what we'll be doing throughout the week and looking at various subjects, really concentrating on the last week of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and many of the discourses that Christ would have with those that he had preached some three or three and a half some odd years to and how he would, would end that last week upon earth and how we see the things that he has taught and will teach rather them and of course we glean for ourselves. 
If you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, as we consider our lesson regarding Jesus, it is imperative that we go and, and I want us to go back and look at an Old Testament uh, passage, a scriptural event in the life of a man who is described as being a man after the heart of God or God's own heart. A person that we know was not infallible. As a matter of fact, God's servant David, the king of Israel, had committed things that more than likely if he lived in this day and time, we would have him run out of town, if not lynched, as he did many heinous things that we consider to be just deplorable. But the thing that we do find is as David would do and commit these things, David, with his humility, would repent and turn to God. That's what it was. It wasn't that David was perfect, but David was perfected in the will of God. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Even the events that we would see with, uh, that he would commit with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, we see David in Psalm 51 pouring out and crying out to God for forgiveness. And so David was not a perfect man, a flawless man, but David indeed was a man who was after God's own heart, as the Bible says. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find an event in the life of David. <laughs> David uh, was enjoying relative peace. And as we oftentimes know, when we're in a pretty good position, a pretty good time in our lives, we oftentimes ponder and, and consider things that we ought to do, need to be doing, should be doing better. Well, David is such a one as that also. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his own house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell? Where is have I not dwelt, or have I not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day? but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And in all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shall thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from a sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee when uh, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since that uh, the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy, fa uh, thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of, uh, out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name. 
and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But mercy shall not depart any uh, away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Before thee thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. This is a very significant and important time in the life of David. As a matter of fact, it would be these things, this promise that would be referred to back to the day of Pentecost or later in the day of Pentecost by the apostle Peter. He would stand up on, uh, in Jerusalem and preach the gospel, he and the other apostles of Jesus Christ. He would say that it was... The, uh, uh, David, brother, was a prophet, and God had sworn with him of oath that of the fruit of his loins he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Referring back to this promise right here. But I want you to notice certain verses we consider our lesson for tonight. And go back to verse number 7. And notice what God told Nathan to tell David. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? I want to talk this evening about Jesus in silence. Jesus in silence. We, we kind of hinted on this, uh, hinted on this uh, yesterday, the importance of scriptural silence. Now, I don't want to just necessarily look at this from a, a, a hermeneutical standpoint of how to establish Bible authority, but I want us to even more so consider for just a moment, when we understand the importance of scriptural silence, we also acknowledge our dependency on, upon God for guidance. It's only when we begin to perceive in our own hearts as David did. Remember, David never told Nathan to consult God and see if God wanted him to build a house. David presumed upon himself that, hey, I sit here. Now, again, I'm not questioning all the motives of David. David was uh, also probably more than likely seeing, uh, thinking, rather, as we see, that, you know, here I am and, and I have all this. But, 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 the, uh, but the ark of the Lord is, is, in, is in, a house, uh, in, a, in a tent. You know, it's just, it just seems un, unequal. It just seems wrong. So God should be in a higher place than me. But the thing about it is, in doing that, David was to a small degree. Saying God needs to be in a better place than I am or a place like me? For just a moment. Dare we say that David forgot the omnipresence of God and the great sovereignty and the rulership of God as sitting literally in heaven itself, in the universe. All creation being his dwelling place. Even places that the eyes have not yet seen was his dwelling place. But yet David, as we oftentimes see in a time of peace, when all of David's enemies had been uh, uh, enemies rather had been removed or, or subdued from God, David, as we oftentimes do in times of peace, beginning to think of things, consider things. Except when we're in battle, oftentimes we're so dependent on God to fight those battles and then to be with us during those battles and to guide us during those battles that we don't have time to come up with our own things. You see, David failed to realize who God was. And of course, Stephen would even bring this up later in Acts chapter 7. This fact, God, you know, the earth is my footstool. 
And so we see that David presumed something that God never, ever stated. Not one time. Now, when we go back to a period of our history in America, uh, we find what's referred to as the Restoration Period. And there were men who decided they needed to go back and, and follow the, the New Testament pattern of how uh, God's people were to, to, to worship and to, to, to work uh, in the kingdom of God. They had become wearied and tired of denominational dogmas and doctrines and catechisms and all these various things and the denominational way in which people were endeavoring to follow Jesus. And so they said, we need to go back to the Bible. And the great plea from men who, who were in his day, men such as Thomas Campbell stated, we speak where the Bible speaks and are silent where it is silent. I believe this is an admirable and notable plea, a noteworthy plea, one that's honorable. But you know, <laughs> if we're not careful, as I've probably seen and you have too, please somehow or another kind of transcend themselves into the Bible commandments. Now, understand, this is a noble plea. Let's speak where only the Bible speaks. But we need to be careful in giving attribution to men and understanding that God, in His Word, stated the very thing that they are reiterating. And notice I emphasize reiterating. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 11, Peter had already stated in an apostle of Jesus Christ a long time ago as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. So Thomas Campbell and others were simply... We're simply stating in a different way what had already been stated, what had already been established. Oftentimes, dear brethren, actually quote Thomas Campbell as if he's an apostle himself. No, Peter said that. Peter gave that principle. Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave that command. And by the way, this is a command. When you speak, when I speak anything that we say is God's word, we better speak as his word says. We have no room to be inventive and creative in the kingdom of God. You know, we live in a world that, that just thrives on creativity. Beloved, as Christians, we don't have room for creativity. Tell me, where in the Bible does the Bible tell us that we need to be imaginative and inventive and come up with different ways we can serve the Lord? No, we... We are in a way, in a religion, we follow a man that says, I have set the precedence. Do what I say, follow what I did. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we're to do. You see, we as human beings have to understand, we're not in a position. We don't have the ability to come up with ways that can be superior to God. And so when we speak, let us speak as his oracles, as his sayings. When we minister or serve, let's do it with the ability or strength, some burden, say that God gives, that he may be glorified and not us. Now, what is the true plea that we see Peter stating here? When we consider the true plea, the true plea is from Christ. It's from him. That's the plea. It's not from Thomas Campbell. It's from Christ. And again, I'm not trying to, 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 to uh, criticize or lambast Thomas or Alexander Campbell, but I am saying that there were things that they did that, brethren, quite frankly, we wouldn't fellowship. Amen. 
Okay, they, they, you know, I never heard of these men until after I became a Christian. Never heard of them. It was brought to my attention. Thomas, Thomas, who, Thomas Campbell. Uh, you know you're a, 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 a recipient or participant in the restoration movement. The, the, I remember the, I remember back when I was in school, they had something about the uh, the Protestant movement and the Reformation movement and then the restoration. I remember that from a historical standpoint. So you're trying to say, that's what I'm a part of? Well, yeah, you don't remember. No, I really don't. I'm just following what the Bible says. <laughs> I'm just doing what God said for me to do. That did not know who these men were. And so the true plea is from Christ. And what was the plea from Christ? Let's turn to John chapter 17, verse 16 through 21. <coughs> Verses we're very familiar with. In the true Lord's prayer, the true Lord's prayer, Jesus makes a true plea. And notice what this plea is for. Well, this true, uh, this plea, many say, well, it's for unity. It's for unity. Well, I want us to know what the true plea really is. In John chapter 7, verse 16 through 21, the Apostle John writes, They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them through thy word, or through thy truth, I'm sorry, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. Watch this next part. Here's the standard. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's the true plea from Christ. And of course, when we go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, our Lord tells us, tells his disciples, tells his apostles, Go and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe whatsoever I command thee, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. Whatsoever I command you, that's what you teach. That's making disciples. The plea is also for true conformity. True conformity. Not uniformity. True conformity. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 2, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable, uh, or living sacrifice, holy and acceptable with God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It's for true conformity, and that's what we find in 1 Peter 4.11. I conform myself into the image of Christ. In other words, Christ becomes the model, the mold by which I operate and serve God. I conform myself to his image. You see, the plea for true unity is based and rooted in our hearts and our attitudes toward God. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6, he's transferred himself and Apollos that men ought not to think above that which is written. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. True unity. True unity is an issue of attitude. It's an issue of our hearts. It's an issue of our minds. And this was the true plea of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 
and verses 1 through verse number 3. Now I want us to note something. Let, let, let me skip down to, to verse 3 for a moment. And then I want to read actually verses 3 through verse number 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity spirit, uh, of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there's one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, when we look at that, we often see there it is. That's unity. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one body, one church. Those are the facts. That is the basis of unity. Beloved, I present to you the facts are not the basis of unity. But our attitudes toward those facts, our hearts toward those facts, that's the basis of unity. Because notice what Paul said in verse 1 and 2, before he stated the facts. I therefore, now watch this, this is the Apostle Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. Now watch verse 2 now. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, and then the facts. It's a heart. Regarding those facts. Paul said he was a prisoner. Beloved, if we're faithful Christians, we're prisoners of the Lord as well. We're bond servants. We're slaves. And a slave does not tell his master what to do. A slave does not tell his master what he ought to be doing. You see, we are reliant upon Jesus and all that he has said. And so when we consider the plea, the true plea, it's a plea that is according to the example and teachings of our Lord. Now, as we endeavor to consider further, what about silence? How does that play a role in all this, Brother Harold? Well, let's examine that for a moment. The scriptures recognize, first and foremost, the authority of silence. You see, when we recognize the authority of silence, we are also acknowledging our dependency on God. Remember David? God didn't tell David to say that. God, God never told anybody in Israel to build me a house. God never said, you know what? I am in so desperate need of a dwelling place. Could y'all help me out, please? That was very presumptuous of David, and God corrected David. And note in the text, God said, I will establish my <laughs> people. I will make a place for myself. I will decide who builds it. I will establish his kingdom forever. I will set him up. I will appoint him. I will do this. Not you. <coughs> you see, God is the one who's sovereign. And when we understand the authority of silence, we are acknowledging our dependency on the guidance of God through his word. You know, when you speak, you are literally acknowledging an authority. The question is, what authority are you acknowledging? Now, as we consider that the scriptures recognize this authority, there are many Old Testament examples. We're familiar with them. What about Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel. What did God command Cain and Abel? God commanded that they were to offer the firstlings of their flock. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because Abel, according to Hebrews chapter 11, offered his sacrifice by faith. By faith. In other words, he did what God said. But Cain, Cain decided he was going to offer something else. And understand, if God had said for you to offer the fruits of the ground, that would have been okay. But God never said that. Cain was very presumptuous. 
and assuming that God would accept that. And of course, Cain was wrong, that God did not. He was angry at the fact that God did not accept his sacrifice. And you think about this idea of faith. You see, faith, the Christian is separated, sanctified through the truth. That's what Jesus said. It's the truth that separates us from the world. Not, not our own, own assumptions and intuitions. It is the truth. Thy word is truth. The difference between Christians and anybody else in the world is we understand our limitations. We understand our dependency on God. We understand that we're fallible. We realize we know that we need Jesus, not Jesus needs us. That's the difference. Other people say, hey, we can do what we want to do. God's going to accept it because I'm doing it. Much like Cain. Cain was the first person to decide what God is going to get instead of what God wants. And there's so many people like that in the world. God says, sing. No, God, you're going to get some playing. I like it. You ought to like it. There's Noah. Noah obeyed God in everything. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that Noah was a man who did all, who obeyed all the commandments of God. All of them. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7, the Hebrew writer tells us again some things way past the original uh, time of, uh, of Noah. But he reaches back and he tells us some things about Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen, as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became the heir or heir of righteousness, which is by faith. How did Noah condemn the world? By his righteousness, by obeying God. And you know this also in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, Noah built that ark that, that the Hebrew writer is speaking of specifically according to God's commands. As a matter of fact, all the dimensions, all the measurements were according to what God had commanded him uh, by which to build the ark. Noah built the ark out of gopher wood. He did all that God had commanded him to do. Why? Because Noah realized that he was dependent on God. Noah recognized the importance of silence. He recognized when God specifies a thing, all of the things are eliminated. They're omitted. Go for what? That's what you... I don't, I don't have to start reasoning about what's going to be better and, and what I should... Cons- you know, I go for what I... You know, God, that's a good wood. I, I, I kind of get that. But, you know, I'm thinking oak might be a little more sturdy. And oftentimes, that's the way we approach the commandments of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. But I, I, I think we can improve on it. I really think... That if we consider, we can do this a little bit. Why do you think the gospel has been so perverted? Because people believe the gospel in its purest form is not sufficient to bring people to Christ. That's what they believe. But Jesus Christ says, if I be lifted up, I will draw on, uh, men unto me. But of course, men say, look, well, if we be lifted up, we wouldn't draw you to us. And then, of course, you can, we can, uh, uh, you can be drawn to Christ. Silence is of the essentiality for us to understand. Now, what about Nadab and Abihu? In Leviticus chapter 10, as well as Leviticus uh, 16 and verse 12, remember, the fire was to come from the altar. Well, they offered God strange fire. And as a result, they were destroyed. 
they were destroyed. You know, there's another subject. Anyone would not have a Mac computer in there, would, would they? <laughs> I forgot my cord and I'm about, well, anyway. PowerPoint goes out, it goes out. Just to let y'all know, that's probably going to happen. All right. We still have our Bible, so we can continue on, correct? All right. So, Jesus, Jesus also, and even the example of Jesus is a testament to the importance of scriptural silence. Jesus, as high priest, is a testimony to the importance of uh, scriptural silence. Now remember, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, the Hebrew writer says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, a perfect high priest. A sinless high priest, one who can offer sacrifice and did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself as those in the Levitical priesthood. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, sinless man who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice by which the new covenant was established. So he was a great or the great high priest or is the great high priest. But now there's, there's a problem. There's a problem. Now, when you go back to the Old Testament, the Bible says in Psalms 110 and verse number 4, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's referring to Christ. As a matter of fact, this particular psalm is quoted in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, Hebrews 7 and verse 17. And it's all referring to Jesus Christ. So God had already affirmed with an oath that Jesus, his son, would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wait a minute. Not after Aaron? Not after Levi? No. You see in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 4. The Bible says. For if we were on. If he were on earth rather. He should not be a priest. Seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. If Jesus were a priest here on earth. He couldn't be such. Because remember. The priests offer the gifts of sacrifices. According to the law of Moses. Well what was the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is stated in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses number 9 through 17. Well, what's the problem? Why couldn't Jesus Christ be a high priest on this earth? Why did he have to be a priest over the house of God, a spiritual kingdom, one made not with hands, a tabernacle made without hands? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, we find in verses 9 through 17, the Hebrew writer would state this. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. But he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change in the law. God is going to keep his law. God did keep his law. God is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to contradict the law that he's already established. So therefore, there's going to be another priest that is not after the order of, uh, of Aaron or the order of the Levitical priesthood. Rather, There must of necessity, the Bible tells us, be a change in the law. God's not going to go against what he says. Then he goes on to say this. For he of whom these things are spoken, talking about Christ, pertaining to another tribe 
of which no man gave attendance to the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Moses said the priesthood would come from Levi, as commanded by God. The sons of Aaron would be the high priest. He did not go through and list every other tribe that was not qualified to serve as priest or in the Levitical priesthood and serve in the tabernacle. He said or specified who would be. So Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So in other words, I have said this, I have established this, so if this is going to take place, there must be a change in the priesthood after a different, a different order. I've already established and appointed Melchizedek by whom came even before Levi was brought out of the loins of his father Abraham. And I've already said that I'm going to have a priest over my house and he's going to be of the tribe of Judah. And so guess what? There had to be a change in the Levitical priesthood. God does not go against what he says. Silence, silence is authority. And so, instead of God contradicting himself, God established a new priesthood. Now, beloved, if God, God, is going to do that, how should we recognize authority and the authority specifically of silence? You see, Jesus, Jesus, and we need to consider Jesus. Jesus did no sin, neither was his speech deceitful? Peter says he did no sin. Uh, no, uh, neither did no sin. Neither was God found in his mouth. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-two. Jesus has all authority. In Matthew twenty-eight and verse number eighteen, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Jesus is the Son of God. And in John chapter five and verse number eighteen, when Jesus said, "I am my Father one." The Jews sought to kill Jesus. Why? Because he said that God was his father, and they understood exactly what that meant, thus making himself equal with God. And they knew what he meant. Jesus, as the perfect example, is the perfect example. Of course, Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 5 through 6, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow with things in heaven and things on earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is the perfect example. Now, how did Jesus deal with silence? What was his attitude toward biblical silence? What was his attitude toward biblical authority? This is the Son of God. He is equal with God. How did he regard these things? What Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29, he did always those things that were pleasing to his Father. Always. And he doesn't lie. And so Jesus was perfect in everything. So now let's look at his attitude toward silence. You first look at his attitude toward himself. In John chapter 5, verse 30 and 32. John chapter 5, verse 30 and 32. I will say, if 
this does go off, which it probably will, y'all just give me about three minutes. If you can spare three minutes for me to change it to my iPad or my iPhone. Technology is wonderful, isn't it? In John chapter 5, verse 30 through 39, know what Jesus says about himself. Again, perfect example here, perfect example. John 5, 30 through 32. Then when he out, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, let me get to chapter 5 here, my apology. Excuse me. Verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he testified, or witnesses rather, is true of me. I can do nothing of myself, Jesus said. Wait, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus. What does he mean he can do nothing in and of himself? Look at his attitude toward silence, toward authority, toward God, toward his Father. We need to look at this perfect example. Look at his attitude toward his own words. Look at what Jesus said about his very own words. He was the word of God made flesh and he dwelt among them. The only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Remember Jesus in John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Jesus. He was made into the form of man. Notice what he says about his own words in John chapter 7 and verse number 16. Our Lord says this about his own words. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Look at John 12 and verse 49 through 50. John 12. Verse 49 through verse, uh, verse number 50. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. This is the Son of God saying that about his own words. Jesus' attitude towards his own word is an example for us. Even though Jesus was God, even though Jesus, the Son of God, still said, look, my words are not my own. My doctrine is not my own. The words that I speak, they don't come from me. They come from the Father. And so if Jesus had that attitude toward his own words, we definitely see how we need to have that attitude toward our words. This is Jesus. Of course, we are not Jesus. One more set of verses. In John chapter 14, verses 10 through verse number 24, again note what Jesus Christ said. John chapter 14, verse 10 and verse 24. John again records for us this. Believest thou that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And then, of course, verse number 24. He that loveth me, uh, not brother, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, yet being present with you. Jesus, 
attitude toward the word, being the word, was respect toward that very word. You know, when you look at the example of Jesus, as of course we see his example toward himself, his example toward his words. What about his example toward scriptures? Remember John 5 and verse 39, Jesus Christ told those Jews, search the scriptures, but in, in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. <coughs> search them. But they're going to testify of me. You see, Jesus, when we look at his earthly ministry, stated it is written 18 times, recorded for us. We find that Jesus says, have ye ever read Ten times in the gospel accounts. Search the scriptures we know that was stated in John 5 and verse 39 as we have noted. Would have had this chart up here, but of course you see, you know why we don't. But now when you look at the gospel accounts, I want you to notice something. First of all, the total number of verses in the gospels. In Matthew's account, it's uh, uh, 1,181 verses. In Mark's account, 609. Luke's account, 12, uh, 1,251. John's account, there are 879 verses. Total, 3,929 verses within the gospel accounts. Now, of those... Verses spoken by Jesus in Matthew 603, in Mark 275, in Luke 570, in John 417. Total specific verses as far as the direct speech and direct words of Jesus, 1,865 words. Others are narratives. He went here and while he was here and various things of that nature. All right, now, why is that important? Well, when you look at the number of words, verses... Jesus Christ spake. Out of those 603 verses spoken by Jesus in the Matthew, uh, Matthew's account, 83 are cited from the Old Testament. When you look at the words in Mark's gospel account, 275, 34 are cited. Old Testament passages of scripture. Luke, out of 570, 24. Out of John, 417, 20 are quoting Old Testament passages of scripture. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment. When you look at Matthew's account, in other words, 13.8% of what Jesus Christ said was coming from the word itself, the Old Testament. You may say, well, 13%, I thought it would have been more than that. Remember, he is the word. Now, I want you to consider for just a moment, just a moment, 13.8%. Imagine your conversation with somebody about God. 13% of what you say. You're quoting a passage of scripture. Well, brother, I want it to be a hundred percent. Okay, come on. There is the idea of exposition, so to speak, as to what's been said. Beloved, thirteen point eight percent of what Jesus Christ said. As far as Mark's concerned, twelve point four percent. Luke, seven point four percent. John, four point eight percent. A total, really, as far as percentage is concerned, nine point six percent of everything Jesus Christ said he was quoting from the Old Testament. In other words, let's just say 10% of what you said in a conversation is the Bible. That means one word out of every 10 that you say, you're quoting the scripture. 10. 10 words out of every 100 you say, you're quoting scripture. Now, just have a conversation with yourself when you get home and do that. Just try it. Give it a shot. Every sentence in your paragraph, just get in the mirror and write out ten sentence paragraph. And one of those sentences 
or if you dare say one of those words, needs to be a quote from the Old Testament. I think you'll find that Jesus, Jesus spoke as the oracles of God. I think you'll find that when Jesus Christ had something to say, it was from God's word. Jesus did not deal in speculation. The Son of God could have very well, everything he said was of authority. But Jesus chose to literally go to the Old Testament text. Let me refer you back to that. Beloved, do we respect silence, the authority of silence to the point where we're not running out telling people what we think about something, how we believe it ought to be, what we believe is more practical, more expedient, what we believe should be done and should not be done, or are we quoting what God says should be done? See, a lot of times I find us saying, well, I just don't think that's a good idea. Why not? Well, you know, when we hold it, I asked you why not, not what you thought about why not. Give me why not or give me why. Well, well, nothing. When we start with that, brother, we are not respecting scriptural silence. We are not realizing that God is the one who tells us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and why it's to be done. And if we can't do that, or we, even worse, we won't do that. We're going to answer to the one who demands it. What is our attitude towards scriptural silence? What about Jesus in silence? Well, beloved, I believe we ought to follow the example of Jesus. And when we speak, we're going to speak as the oracles of God. Remember the plea. Now, remember what Peter said. Remember what the Bible teaches us. I believe that if we would demand that, like we demand it from others, you see, we go to other people in other churches, you know, and we tell them, look, man, you, you have to understand, you have to speak where the Bible speaks. And if there's no verse for what you're doing, you need to give it up. If you can't find your church in the Bible, you need to give it up. If you can't find what you, you know, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Why are you teaching that? That's so wrong. I mean, you can't find one verse, one place where a man prayed to God and he received salvation just based on his prayer in the new covenant. You just, you can't find God never commanded. You know, Saul of Tarsus, and I can show you this in Acts chapter 9. He, when he was blinded, went to Damascus. He prayed and fasted for three days and three nights. Hey, but you know what? In Acts 22 and verse number 16, here, let me show it to you now. He still, Ananias told him, arise. Why tarries thou arising? Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Call on the name of the Lord. That's what he says. See, Luke said that in Acts 22 and verse 16. That's what you need to do. And then we turn around. You see. Well, the so-and-so, what do you, well, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea. I did.
beloved, when we do not demand of ourselves what we demand about others, and we'll deal with this during the week, Jesus and hypocrisy. That was the condemnation of the Pharisees as we talked about yesterday. Not what the book says, but when we demand of others from that book that we ourselves are not willing to comply to. Beloved, that is hypocrisy. We have to demand the book from ourselves just as we do from everybody else. Just as David's, you know, I'm in this big old house, this palace. The ark is just in a tent. You know what? I think I'll build a house for the ark. When did I say one word to anybody about that? Our attitude has to be if God has not said it, I'm not going to do it. And if God has said it, I better do it. I'll even go so far as to say, I love to do it when God says it. Jesus and silence, beloved. We need to adopt the attitude and the practice of Jesus regarding silence. And I would encourage us to do so when it comes to evangelism. Let's quote more of the book than what we believe about what the book says. When it comes to edification, our worship services, let's quote the book. Let's practice and do what the book tells us to do more than what we think the book is telling us. Some of these passages, guys, are so, so simple. But because of human wisdom and intuition, they become so complicated, so convoluted, so difficult. Some of these verses you have to be taught not to believe, not taught to believe. (laughs) Well, let me tell you what God is really saying. Oh, really? Jesus and Thomas, let's adopt the attitude, the mind of Christ. The respect and reverence that Jesus, the Word of God, had toward the Word. Beloved, I believe we can faithfully follow and practice what God commands of every one of us. I end our lesson in Revelation 20 and verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. We will be judged by our works in accordance to the book. Not, not what we believe or what we feel or what we think about anything. It's the book. So let us, let us respect it. Dare we say, let us cherish it. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, it's the word of God that tells you what you must do to be saved. (laughs) The Bible clearly says that you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. John 8 and verse 24. You must believe in him. And then let me go ahead and say this now. You have to believe if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
everything the book says about him and you have to be willing to do everything the book says from him. Period. That's faith. Faith come by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You must base be uh, uh, based on your faith, based on your belief in Christ, your trust in Christ, willing to turn away from everything contrary to God. It's called repentance. It's not only stop or to cease from doing things. Oh, I repented. I don't drink, smoke, cuss. I don't fornicate. Stop committing adultery a few years ago, some folks say. Good. What about your heart? What about your mind? Not only do you have to stop doing things, you have to acknowledge and be willing to start doing things that God commands. You see. Then based upon that willingness to turn away from all that's contrary to God, you must confess Christ before men. Now, as we've said, that confession is a profession. In other words, I agree. I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the Jews knew that meant he was God. That means for us, he is Lord. I'm going to do whatsoever he commands me. And I'm willing to die for his cause. That's why our Lord tells the apostles in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. We saw Peter deny Jesus three times. I, 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 I don't know him. I wouldn't with him. See, sometimes people can do that. No, you've got to be willing to confess Christ and receive all the ramifications that come with that. Then it could have cost you your life. You know, the confession can cost you your life now, and it's going to cost you your life because you have to be born again. That's baptism. You're crucified with Christ. You're buried with him. You're raised to walk in newness of life. You are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That old man is dead. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Sometime he would try to resurrect himself. And as a disciple of the Lord, you got to beat him right back down in that grave. Oh, he will try. My nickname used to be G-Man back in the day. Sometimes G-Man tries to resurrect himself, and i got to beat him back down. But he tries. So as a child of God, God does not ask you to be perfect and flawless. He asks you to be perfected. Perfected and faithful. So when you sin as a child of God, you repent of those sins. You confess them to the extent that they've been committed. Beloved, that means you have to publicly confess things you publicly did. And not, well, I did something wrong. Okay. And I know that's controversial in a lot of places. I personally don't think it's that difficult. Then you live faithfully all the days of your life. Till you die and to the point of death. And in this country, <laughs> the latter may come before the former if we, if we keep going in the direction we're going. Now, if you're willing to do that, you can become a child of God today. But understand the example of Jesus. We follow a perfect Savior who adhere to all that the Father commanded him to do. You also must do that. Again, God does not require that you be perfect. But as I said, perfected in the Son, Jesus Christ. God will forgive you and you can go on past those things and continue to live faithfully. 
If we can help you in that endeavor, we encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing. James, how I love to proclaim it. Redeem by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem to His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeem, 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 redeem. Redeem by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem. we've allotted uh, time for questions uh, that anyone might have. And please, please don't hesitate to ask. Does anybody have any questions? You mentioned some things that, as Christians, we tend to overcomplicate. I'm not asking to open up any bag of worms necessarily, but what are some practical examples that you might think of, or at least one example? I believe... For example, and I'll tell you one example that helped me in the simplicity of Christ. I, of course, could say he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Uh, I don't know how in, the, how in the world the world complicates that, okay? Uh, but I will tell you one thing that really helped me in some of, some of my, the change of my convictions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as I listen to men say this, that, and that, and this, and then all so many other things, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Oh, yeah, I do. Question asked. Question answered. To me, that's the simplicity of what I'm talking about, referring to many of the issues that come up among us. People have to study their way out of those things. Okay? Uh, I believe, it's my belief, also, I'm going to bring that up, I'm going to be fair in my assessments. I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is such a point of controversy, verses 17 through 34, which I would imagine both, most of us here would conclude is pretty simple, right? We don't understand how them brethren don't understand that. I believe verses 2 through verse 16 is equally as simple. I'm just going to go ahead and take We don't agree on that. And I can tell just by the audience. Okay? We don't agree. I believe y'all are wrong. But now I also am willing to study with the spirit of meekness and love as we sit down and reason through these things. I think we've kind of pushed those things to the side. For some reason, verses 17 through 34, oh boy, we, we, we talk about that. We, we tell people how they're so wrong. But I don't hear much about verses 2 through 16. I think we've accepted the differences between us. And let's just leave that alone. Most preachers out here have taught that. Oh, Paul just said this. Let's get on verses of the Lord's Supper. Now, I had to change my convictions on that. So that's why I believe that. I I believe there are some commands that are so simple that we're just disregarding, or we haven't taken the time to really explore and look at. That's one example. You, like I say, there are, there are so many others, but 
To me, that's a simple question. Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? If you're hungry, eat at home. I don't know why that's so complicated. But I would also add verses 2 through 16. Don't know why that's so complicated. And might also I add this along those lines, Brother Steve. I've heard, and again, I'm just relating my experiences. As I was studying my way out of some things, and I, you know, I'm not using my experiences as authority, but I'm just using my experiences and how things help me. Okay? I was very, to me, confused. Okay? About why certain things were more important and other things were not. Okay? I had to change my conviction on many, many things. But I also believe, and I've heard this from those of the past, you know, older brethren, more experienced brethren, I like to call them, who had to deal with those battles in the past that we say don't exist anymore. I'm going to tell you something, they exist. Yes, gospel meetings of mine were canceled. Support was taken. Even when I said, you know how somebody says they quit, but you've got to fire them anyway? When I said, look, I don't want this more. Oh, well, we're, gonna, we're not going to give it to you anyway. Well, 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 that makes you feel better? Okay. But people are as angry and can be very mean-spirited when it comes to those things. But I simply say that to say this. I heard how, you know, even if those brethren perhaps believe that for the sake of love, you know, if it's not commanded of us, if it's simply something that perhaps is an expedient or something that's a matter of liberty, how we carry out something, I just know why those brethren are so adamant and doing these things, and building these things, and practicing these things, let's just do them the way that we all are safe at. And I was like, well, yeah, that's love. And Romans 14 just kept coming up in those discussions. I always pose a question, and I pose it here to, uh, where I preach. If Romans 14 is true, and I'm just talking about differences now, if you believe you don't have to do something, that you have the freedom to do something or not do something, and one person believes they don't have that freedom, Romans 14 is telling the person who believes they have the freedom to do or not to do to encourage the one that believes they have to. See, all I hear among a lot of brothers, I don't have to do that. Ain't nobody going to make me do that. Don't bring up Romans 14 when you have that attitude. If you don't believe that you have to wear a veil, and that sister does, and you know it bothers her, tell me why you don't put one on. I don't have to. That's what's going to take you to hell. It's like people with, with a piano. You're telling me a piano going to take me to no false worship with you? <laughs> and a lot of times it's the subject, but more so it's our attitudes about those subjects. Now, we as men, if you walk in this congregation, you say those men are together. They're practicing the same thing, whether they believe the same thing or not. We're still practicing the same thing. And we talk about the outward appearance of unity. Okay. All right. It's that sub- and the reason I bring up that subject, because that's a touchy one. And it challenges all of our hearts. I've seen, for some reason, fabric is that big a deal. Fabric. 
And we are talking about institutionalism and fabric for one hour on Sunday we will not comply to for our brother's sake shame on us for that alone any other questions alrighty if you do have some questions and you may have some about what I just I, look I would love to study with people about that because I know some of y'all yeah, I mean probably most of y'all disagree with that that that's fine it's our attitudes in disagreement that's really important okay I think that normally determines most things okay most things alright no further questions nobody has any questions all right. I do appreciate your attention tonight. And uh, tomorrow night, our uh, study will be Jesus and authority. And what we're going to do is Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. He would actually enter, depart, and re-enter. And what did he say regarding authority in those instances? One of the verses that helped me to really see the power of the teaching of Jesus was when he was confronted by the chief priests and elders. By what authority do you do these things? I think that was a legitimate question. But our Lord said, I, would, I will answer your question, you answer mine. Baptism of John. Was it from heaven of a man or of men? I was just blown away. How he taught them and just confounded them because of their dishonesty. But he showed them the authority that he had. So we're going to look at some instances like that, those occurrences that happened when he entered in Jerusalem the first time and the subsequent second time. And see what he had to say about the authority of salvation, of worship, and judgment. Because that's what he dealt with. All right.